Revelation 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. One of the immeasurable blessings of UBM is, um, because of its interdenominational aspect, is we have many people from, obviously, Bible-based, gospel-focused churches working together to preach Christ and him crucified. But those individuals and those um, churches will have different views on a whole range of subjects, such as church government or mode of baptism or style of sung worship, or a whole host of things. And even in one particular expression of a local church, you might have a range of views on certain subjects. And one of those is usually to do with the end times and the interpretation of the book of Revelation. And Pete Williams mentioned it this morning. He said, really, those who did up to chapter 5 had the easy bits, because generally when you get to chapter 6 onwards... um, it gets a little bit more complicated, maybe. And yet Pete made the very good point that it's both simple and complex. So uh, Revelation 1 to 5, lots of common ground there. Um, chapter 6, you get the seven seals, or the first six of the seven seals. And then you come to chapter uh, 7. And with the book of Revelation, there are varying views. And it's generally to do with timing, partly to do with geography and 
And if we think of history as between the, the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, there are sort of um, various views as to the book of Revelation. So some people say that the events of Revelation refer to really about the time of John, so the immediate events around the time of John. Some say they refer to um, the future, the end times, you know, um, at the end of, of history. Some take it as a sort of um, a linear approach of history from the, the first coming of Christ to the end, and they just follow a set order. Or perhaps another view is, as you read um, the book of Revelation, they are a symbolic interpretation of the whole history period of Christ's first coming to his second coming. So inevitably, in a chapter where you've got the 144,000 mentioned, and in the chapter where you've got the Great Tribulation mentioned, I'm going to probably give my view as to what that is. Okay? And you might think, Tim Howlett, what are you talking about? Okay? So um, I'll put my, how my thinking of Revelation fits together. But I do propose the following. First of all, you don't shoot me down as a heretic if you've got the wrong view. I mean, if you've got a different view, okay? Um, but, and I think Pete made this point this morning. Actually, you can have sometimes the wackiest interpretation of Revelation, but the broad points, broad applications um, often get to the same point. So whatever your view of the 144,000 is, whatever your view of the Great Tribulation is, primarily the applications we will agree with because they, are, they can be taken from other parts of the Bible anyway. The other thing I would say is, as part of my deal, if you like, is this. We do all agree that God is sovereign in charge of all that occurs in history and its ultimate conclusion is that there will be an eternal state in which believers are secure with God and unbelievers are separated from him. And the other thing I would say is, however I understand the book of Revelation and however you understand the book of Revelation will not make a difference to how it happens anyway because God knows how it's going to happen and so we'll find out how, it should, you know, how it's going to work out in due course. So... Does that make, is that a fair deal? Okay. Um, when, I, when I speak, I have a choice with, with these kind of microphones. I've got smallish ears, so I can't have my glasses, the microphone, and my hearing aids. So I usually take one of them off. So I've taken my hearing aids out. So I can't hear you heckle, but I can see you asleep. Right? So, um, so with the fact that you didn't respond then, I, well, I, I, I asked a question. I didn't hear an answer. But I think you're still awake, all right? Um, just to say, my understanding of um, Revelation is it's a symbolic interpretation of the whole of history from the first coming to the second coming. And the 144,000 is a description of the church throughout history, okay? So it's certainly not the JW view of 144,000 select believers who will be in heaven and the rest will be on earth. Um, I don't subscribe to the view that it is a specific number of Jewish people. Um, so I'm, I'm telling you that's where I'm coming from. I think it describes the whole church. And actually the 144,000 is exactly the same as the innumerable multitude and is exactly the same as the, uh, the 24 elders, which are all mentioned 
in Revelation 7. So just a reminder, a bit of a recap from uh, what Peter was saying this morning. So in John chapter 5, John uh, sees a scroll that goes unfolding plan of history that is bound with seven seals. And the only one who is worthy to open that scroll is Jesus and the Lamb. And in chapter 6, um, those seals are gradually um, opened. Um, and we see the succession of woes uh, sweep across the world uh, throughout this course of history. And so when you come to the end of chapter 6, and Peter mentioned it this morning, you've got this really sort of really somber statement, verse 17, for the great day of the, their wrath has come, and who can stand? Then you should have the seventh seal, but there's this interlude, and it's ever so important because there's this massive question, who, shall be, who can stand? And so before the seventh seal is opened, in chapter 8, verse 1, there's a half an hour of science in heaven, the question, this interlude, and it talks about the 144,000, this innumerable multitude, the 24 elders, they are the people who can stand because their robes are washed in the blood of the Lamb. So what we're going to do uh, this, morning, um, and this, this morning, this afternoon, is look at three points from this chapter. And these points are about you. They are about me. They are about those who belong to the undefeatable people of God. So that's what we're going to look at in three sections, verses 1 to 8, uh, verses 9 to 12, and then verses 13 uh, to the end. And the first point is this, verses 1 to 8, is we, you, me, the church of God, we are in an army ready for war. That is what we are. That's where we are, in an army ready for war. Um, the battle of, now I'm looking at Steve Taylor here. Is this how you say it? Agincourt? That's the one, okay. Um, it's part of the Hundred Year War uh, between the French and the English. On October the 25th, 1415, Henry V had 5,500 men facing the French army of 20,000 men. The English only lost 400 the French lost 6,000. It was against the odds. A smaller army won against a bigger army. And we know that principle is true. If you read your Bible, you know that's true. There are stories throughout the whole Bible, story after story, of, if like, going against the odds. So whether it's David and Goliath or Gideon or whoever, you know that time and time again in the Bible, small armies overcome massive armies. Now, without unpacking all the detail of verses 1 to 3, what we have here is as God's people, here they're described as servants of God, they are sealed. And the words are sealed three times, really, in relation to Christians in, in this, this chapter. So you have, and it reminds you of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit. So what you have is this interlude. But really, this is describing the events before chapter 6. So as you read verses 1 to 3, the woes and the 
the, the, the catastrophic events of chapter 6 haven't happened. And so you have this people described as being sealed, the people of God. It's a mark of ownership. God owns and protects his people. And then what you have is you have this roll call, this 144,000. It's also mentioned in Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. It talks about the number of redeemed being 144,000. Now, in Revelation 14, the 144,000 are male, adult males. Okay? Does that mean women aren't in heaven? I don't think so. But the idea is this. In the Old Testament, when tribes are listed and a roll call, it's to do with the military might of the people of Israel. And so the picture, the vision is, this is the people of God in battle. They're enlisted to the army to serve God. And so when you read Numbers chapter 1, when you read Numbers 26, you have the, the census of the people. They're listed by tribe, and it's the male adults that are listed because they are ready, they're the military men ready to fight. And that comes out in Revelation 14, the 144,000 here. So what you have here is John is seeing a vision of assembling troops for battle. And as the four winds, that's verse 1, blow throughout history, these servants, as they're called, those who are sealed, are owned by God, protected by God, are to fight. And actually it ties in with the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3. Because in chapters 2 and 3, the promises are given to those who overcome, those who have the victory. And we see in the next section, in um, uh, what, what the verse it is, when they get to heaven... They're waving their palm leaves in as a victorious thing. When they waved their palm leaves, it was because they had won the battle. And so you have this vision of this army, okay, ready for battle. So as the events happen throughout church history, you have God's people ready for battle. And going back to chapter 6, the army's weapon, chapter 6, verse 9, is the word of God. They've been slain for the word of God. And the war cry, if you like, the army's war cry, is that they're witnessing and testifying to who Jesus is and what he came to do. And that's why I think, I don't know if you noticed this, that's why I think Dan and Ephraim aren't actually listed in this list. So when you see the 12 tribes, you think, where's Dan? Where's Ephraim? And I, I personally think it's because in the Old Testament, the two tribes that were given to idolatry were Dan, in Judges chapter 18 mainly, and Ephraim, and you see that in Hosea chapter 4. Those are the two tribes who didn't overcome. They, they gave in to idolatry. And so when John sees this vision, and when you have these 12 tribes listed, and Dan and Ephraim are missing, I think the lesson is this. We are in battle. We are required to overcome. And we do so by the word of God, Revelation 6, verse 9. And we do so by declaring who Jesus is and what 
he came to do. And it's the idea of Ephesians chapter 6. We are in a spiritual battle. We need to put on the spiritual armor. Dan and Ephraim didn't do that. Um, John Bunyan has his book, The Holy War, doesn't he? And it's, it's that kind of imagery. We're here to fight for the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this morning, Peter was talking about why aren't there three groups of people mentioned in Revelation uh, 6? You know, the unbelievers, those who are martyred, and the, I think he used the word normies. I think he used that phrase, didn't he? But the idea is this. Every Christian is required to die to self. Every Christian should be willing to die for Christ. And this is the image here. We're in a spiritual battle where we're saying, we're looking to Christ, we feel weak, we're in a if you like, you know, small army, and that's you know, the Old Testament, even though they were numbered, they were a small army. But the principle is this. Jesus is described as the Lion of Judah, but the strength is through him being the Lamb. Okay, do you see the contrast there? The strength is in actually the, the weakness. The victory is in because he's the lamb. And when you have Revelation uh, 7 and 144,000, we're described um, the servants of God. So it's our weakness, and as we look to Christ, that gives us the victory. It's all about faithfully preserve, persevering. It's all about refusing to deny that Jesus is Lord. It's all about living a life of holiness. It's about not giving a foothold to the devil. So as we look at the, um, come to the conclusion of verses 1 to 8, what can we learn? We are in a battle. It might seem daunting. We might feel outnumbered. But we are on the winning side, okay, because the lion and the lamb, the lion's strength is through the weakness of the lamb who was slain. We learn that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, etc., shall be able to separate us from the love of God. And we are able to overcome. John, the Apostle John, one of his big themes in the book of 1 John is overcoming. If you read 1 John and look for the word overcome, it occurs quite a few times. Uh, 1 John chapter 2 uh, particularly. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, it says, We overcome by abiding in his word. So we are in an army ready for battle. We need to be willing to lay down our lives for him. We certainly need to die to self. And we need to overcome by the word of God, Revelation 6 verse 9, 1 John chapter 2 verse 14. That is where we are now, ready for battle. But then we go to verses 9 to 12. And it describes, an we're in an assembly ready for worship. 
Now, in those days, um, and this particular day was the 4th of January 2011, in the days when Manchester United used to win football matches, they were playing Stoke. Okay, so we've got a few Stokeites here. Well, actually, Man United won 2-1. What was unique about that game for Manchester United, 4th of January 2011, is the starting 11 were all from different countries. And there were another three countries represented on the bench. So the starting 11 were Poland, Brazil, Serbia, England, France, Portugal, Scotland, Republic of Ireland, Wales, Bulgaria and Mexico. I think it was the first time people reckoned that the the starting 11 were from different nations. And um, also in 2011, a couple of weeks later, when um, Blackburn Rovers were playing West Brom, uh, West Brom, in the match, including the substitutes, 22 nationalities were on the pitch throughout, throughout the game. What we have here in this chapter, we have two views of God people. So you have the 144,000 standing on the brink of battle while still on earth and now. But now we have this innumerable multitude enjoying their heavenly reward. The 144,000 and the innumerable multitude, um, in my view, are the same group of people, us, the church. And I say we also see in verse 11 that they're represented by the elders, which comes out in chapter 4, verse 4. So we have unity in battle, unity in war in the first bit. Now we have unity in worship. Um, I, don't if, I think Pete's probably gone. I can't see him. Is Pete William still here? Is that the back? Now, Pete and I, and uh, Andy Mackie know him, um, we often go to a conference. It's called the European Leadership Forum. And um, it's really quite an eclectic mix of Christians. But they are Christians. But you sometimes go and you chat to them and you think, <laughs> what are they thinking? You know, a whole range of views. But they are Christians. And it's great to be there. And uh, Pete was actually... Uh, the main speaker uh, this last year. And one of the traditions, if you like, that has um, happened over the last few years is on the last main session, we we sing a song, um, um, and everyone sings the chorus in their mother tongue. And in some ways it's a bit chaotic, because you've got all these, it's about 50 nationalities, okay, so, so some common languages in that. But you've got these, I know, 700 people singing this um, hymn in their own language. But there's something, when you, at the end of the, the uh, conference, you think, well, there's, they're a good bunch of Christians. I disagree with a lot of them about a lot of things. But you're singing, singing praise to God in your own language. Now, when we get to heaven, it'll be even better because we'll be singing praise, in, I think, in a common language, but there'll be people from different tribes, different um, language groups, different nations. That's what we get here um, in verse uh, 9. After this, I looked and beheld a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne. And what they do have in common is this. They are clothed in robes of white 
washed in blood. More of that in the next section. But as you read these verses, it's not just the, the redeemed church of God. They are actually singing those praises with the angels. So verse 11. And their focus is to worship the Lamb. So you have this incredible sight. You have this incredible sound. What we have is the song of chapter 5, which Steve dealt with last night, verses 12 and uh, and 13, singing, Worthy is the Lamb. And there I am, standing in heaven, and I'm standing next to a Saudi believer here, an Afghan believer here, and we're singing praise to the Saviour. There are some Sawi believers. Um, know the peace child, that, that, that tribe, over there. And there's uh, some Takana believers, that's um, North Kenya, over there. You get the picture, don't you? There are all of us from different nations, different tribes, praising God. I don't know if Roger Oldfield is still here, but Roger, um, Juliet used to work, his wife used to work in the UBM office. Juliet went to be with the Lord this year. Roger will be there with Juliet. 30 years ago, um, I lost a daughter. She'll be there. People that you know and loved who've gone to be the Lord, they'll be there. We'll be standing singing praises. That is a privilege. That is a prospect and I think what we can, um, what it is, we've got the idea of us standing, Christ is sitting. That's the picture here. So Christ is very much the centre. So what do we learn as we think of ourselves as an assembly ready for worship? First of all, Christ is the absolute centre of everything. We are standing, we are singing, we are submitting, we are falling on our faces Um, He is sitting. And the challenge is, how close are we to that in our daily walk now? What is our worship like now? And really, this scene describes a love for the Lord as we worship him and sing praise to him. But also, what can we learn? If people from every tribe are in heaven... What does that give us confidence to do now? It gives us confidence to speak to people from Saudi Arabia because we know there'll be some in heaven. And why not the person that you speak to who's from Saudi Arabia? So this vision of heaven teaches us about a love for the Lord but also a love for the the lost. We're reaching... There are people from all nations there and it gives us confidence... To, to reach out. It gives you confidence to go to Bournemouth, where you meet so many nationalities, or Montreux, or wherever it happens to be. It's a love for the lost. But also in heaven, this picture, what we can learn? There's unity among believers in heaven. And the challenge is, if it isn't here now, then it needs to be put right now, because that's what's going to be in heaven. So this picture of heaven, verses 9 to 12, teaches us a love for the Lord, a love for the lost, and a love for each other. 
Where have you heard that before? Okay. Um, but that's, that's heaven, isn't it? That's what it teaches us. Then finally, verses um, 13 to 17, I've called it in an atmosphere. I couldn't think of a better A word. You can work on that for yourself. An atmosphere free from worry. Now, this section, verses 13 to 7, in fact, this chapter, this whole book, centers on the most pivotal event of history, the death of Christ on the cross. So in verse 14, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 15, therefore, in other words, because of Christ's death on the cross, because we are redeemed, because we have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, therefore, verses 15 through to 17, the benefits, the blessings listed there are ours. Because of Christ's death, we enjoy being before the throne of God. Therefore, we serve him day and night. Therefore, verse 16, we will hunger no more. Therefore, we will thirst no more. Therefore, the, sh- the sun shall not strike us or any scorching heat. In fact, um, the last two verses are quotes from the Old Testament, both from Isaiah 25, verse 8, and Isaiah 49, verse 10. And John has given us a glimpse of glory. It's expanded a bit further in chapter 21, verse 4. In fact, in the book of Revelation, there are 12 times when this, the, uh, the phrase, no more, is, is written. Okay, so 12 times in the book of Revelation. So 22 verse 5, no more darkness. 21 verse 4, no more death. 21 verse 1, no more distance. 10 verse 6, no more delay. 7 verse 16, no more destitution. 5 verse 5, no more distress. And 18 verses 21 to 23, which has six no mores, no more devil. But the point is this, because of verse 14, verses 15 to 17 are true. Do you recognize the name Elisha Hoffman? No. Let me tell you about Elisha Hoffman. In 1866, at the age of 26, Hoffman married Susan Orwig. She was 22 at the time. Ten years later, 1876, Elisha Hoffman's wife Susan died, leaving him as a single parent of three sons. Two years later, 1878, he composed a hymn. He wrote lots of hymns. His hymn was based on chapter 7, verse 14. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? So two years after his wife had died, he wrote that hymn. One verse says, Will your soul be ready for the mansions bright? He was experiencing the trials of life, but he knew that they would soon be over and those mansions bright were awaiting him. 
So despite losing his wife, he looked forward to heaven. And in verses 15 to 17, we have all suffering is at an end. Injustice has gone. And it's for us together as an innumerable people of God. In these last few couple of verses, eight times you have they or them or there. In other words, the, the, the church of God. So those of us who are redeemed, those of us who are washed in the blood, we have this to look forward to. So what can we learn? Our light affliction is but for a moment. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. There's so much in this, this chapter which we haven't dealt with. It's, it came in some of the hymns, actually. In this section, it talks about God being our shepherd and our shelter for all eternity. That's what God promises us. But we experience that now. And it's, in some ways, it's a foretaste of heaven. So God is our shepherd, it's in these, these verses, and our shelter now. And we will be eternally secure. We'll know it in its fullness in glory. And I think the last thing we can learn is this. We can keep on keeping on. We can serve the Lord knowing that this is something to look forward to. So as we start a new UBM year, I sort of tend to mark the UBM years from 1st of October. Um, but however you measure a new year, but from this day forward, let's be involved in the battle, in an army ready for battle. But let's look to Jesus, knowing that victory is ours. We will be with each other in glory. And you never know, your mansion bright might be next door to mine. Wow. Some... Well, someone's got to live next to me in heaven, okay? <laughs> but the, the point is this. The victory is ours. We're waving the palm leaves, and Jesus is king. I think it's incredible in some ways, as just finish with this. 18 months ago, um, we started planning our first physical reunion after COVID, and we thought it was going to be last September, but, you know, it couldn't do Catherine Lee. And so we thought, and uh, Dave Johnson came up with the, the, the theme, we thought we'd do the king in all his glory. That was 18 months ago. How appropriate this weekend, when we have a new king of the UK, that all our hymns, our theme, has been about Jesus, our king. I think that's in God's goodness. We've been... In a nation that's been a bit shaken and, and unsettled, we can go confidently, Jesus is king. And that's the theme of Revelation.